From Miami Law, I'm Aned Uges, and this is The Explainer. Because communities in the inner city are areas of concentrated poverty, in many instances, there's crime, and crime is not a black problem, it's a poverty problem, it's a, it's a social disadvantage problem. And so if you take away the police, you don't make the problem better, you make the crime worse, you make the violence worse. Welcome to Season 9 of the Miami Law Explainer, the legal affairs podcast where Miami law experts lend context and historical relevance to today's headlines. In the more than two years since the murder of George Floyd, the United States has become even more divided. Criminal and constitution law expert Donald Jones and author of the new book, The Presumption, Racial Injustice in the United States, looks at post-Floyd America and the anti-woke agenda. Let's go to executive producer Catherine Skip with the interview. Good morning, Don. Thanks for joining us. Uh, Good morning to you. Thanks for having me. Sure, sure. So we've seen a lot happen since the murder of George Floyd in 2020 in terms of bringing law enforcement to justice, albeit more slowly than many would like. Um, But could you talk about uh, some other changes to bring about reform? George Floyd's murder was, I think, the moral and political equivalent of the beginning of a new civil rights movement. It was, it was the, this happened with Emmett Till. Perhaps George Floyd is the 21st century Emmett Till. And from the explosive impact of that event, which we all witnessed together as a nation, uh, it produced a spectrum of responses. Uh, it's like an explosion produces a shock wave that produce, uh, it, as it ripples out, there's a spectrum of responses. They range from uh, anger to hope and from uh, a call for reform to a massive call for structural change and everything in between. And I would say that as I review all of the events that have happened, there's good news and bad news. And the good news is there has been significant movement in the realm of reform, both in terms of the law and the practices of the police. And so that that's something we should cheer and celebrate because that's no small thing. But I think on the other hand, I don't think that we have really even begun the process of bringing about structural change. And let me just talk about some of the things that have happened that, that were positive. Uh, one huge claim that came about, uh, it became the slogan, it became the banner of uh, those who consider themselves social revolutionaries, uh, was this idea of defunding the police. And defunding the police was very, it was a positive it, move. And what was positive about it, it was both expression of anger, which was needed, a catharsis of anger, and it was also expression of hope. And it was also finally a a, a statement that we're not going to take it anymore and that the the militarism and hyper-aggression of the police should stop. And so in all those ways that defund, and so in other words, you can't take it literally. And if we take it at its strongest dimensions, this was something that spurred dialogue, that spurred us to reimagine and rethink. And so all this was good. But what was bad was that there were some people who took it literally. And the literalists, uh, I think, were fa- found that their proposal 
was like a wave hitting against the shore. It just wasn't practical. And worse than being impractical, it would have, because communities in the inner city are areas of concentrated poverty, in many instances, there's crime. And crime, it's not a black problem. It's a poverty problem. It's a, it's a social disadvantage problem. And so if you take away the police, you don't make the problem better. You make the crime worse. You make the violence worse. And so, uh, so to defund the police would have risked abandoning these communities to violence and crime. And so the defunding of the police died in places where it was actually tried. So in Minneapolis, they tried it. The city council voted it, but it was was thankfully stopped by higher levels of authority. And this was this was actually a good thing. In New York, de Blasio championed the idea he was going to lead a charge against the budgeting of the police, and he lost the election. Uh, and Eric Adams comes about because in largely reaction that, no, we need the police. And I agree. And I say that as a black man, as someone who has experienced discrimination and confronted uh, being in the crosshairs of police suspicion since I was 13 years old. As a black person, you don't have to do anything to be suspicious. All you have to do is be a black person. Every black person is vulnerable to stereotypes. And so I, I, I understand the dangers of the police and how too often we, we witness incredible injustices, uh, the injustice of Michael Brown, the injustice of Eric Garner, the, the injustice of Tamara Rice. And having said that, the answer is simply not to throw out the police. It's to reimagine what their their role is. And so what's happened in Minneapolis was that the defunding the police movement flailed. What happened to de Blasio, he was, uh, he was booted out of office. And what happened in Chicago and New York was that the budgets increased. And that, that is in and of itself not a bad thing. The question is, what are we spending it on? Now, uh, I think some of the good things that have happened is, is that now more than any time in our history, we're investing in the training of police. Now more than any time in our history, we're investing in trying to change a police culture in which too often the use of force was not associated with accountability. We now have that more than any time in our history. We still don't have enough. But more than any time in our history, we, we're seeing police prosecuted. We're seeing uh, police departments retrained. We're seeing police department take seriously at the point of being having to pay hundreds of millions of dollars in damages that, that there is value to black life. And mm -hmm. so this is a this is a welcome change. And so. In all of these areas, the, 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 ref, the change in terms of training, the change in terms of police. And so if you look at statistics, for example, we still sh police still shoot over 1000 people a year. That's regretful. One person is too much. But one of the things that's interesting is, is that the over year by year, you see a, a significant la lessening of black people being shot. So one black person is too much. But we're seeing it's very significant. A de decrease in the violence that's being done to black bodies on our streets. Good, I good. cheer that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have not done enough. We have not done enough, but we, we do see. And so I would call this reform. And so reform means that we've made some changes on the surface. And, and another change is uh, Latita James, and the, as the Attorney General of New York, has introduced a bill to heighten the standard for 
a police use of force. So historically, under Tennessee versus Garner, the police could not shoot unless it was a dangerous felony. But once it was a dangerous felony, then the court sort of looked away and deferred to the police. So now what she's done is it not only should it be a dangerous felony, but is the felon armed? Is he trying to use the, the, the a gun or a knife? And so she's heightened the, the, the and made more stringent the test. And this is a good thing. We also see from places like New York and some a few other states uh, that qualified immunity for police has been been discarded. All of those are welcome changes. And in many states, instead of picking, stopping blacks for minute offenses on the road, that that has been decreased. All of those are welcome changes and welcome reform. Good, good. Um, But we haven't done the big. We haven't done enough. (laughs) Well, I wanted to uh, then talk a little about the blowback. Um, Yes. these changes seem to have sparked a monumental pushback, or maybe it's not monumental, maybe it's yes. just a very vocal minority reaction, this anti-woke uprising. First, could you just speak to what is and isn't woke? Like, you know, what's a commonly accepted definition, and, and how do some white people, like, twist that when they're talking about critical race well, theory? Well, woke is a stereotype. And so, you know, historically, black people use the term woke to describe if you are aware of the problem of racism. Now, woke has come to uh, be an umbrella term for a number of different things. So uh, for me, a person who's woke is someone who recognizes that there's structural systemic racism in, in the, in, in, and, I, I, and we haven't addressed that, and then hopefully at the end I'll be able to explain what we really have to do, which we haven't even begun to do. But so wokeness really means you're aware of systemic racism. That's what it should mean. That's what we think it means. Now, what woke has become is simply a term that people put on anything that they associate with something extreme or radical. And so wokeness is a derisive term in in the mouths of conservatives. It's a way of saying, well, this is radical. This is extreme. Now, there are some... uh, some prosecutors who did do extreme things. There were people who were uh, co- co- who were guilty of robbery with a gun who were let go, and there were there were were instances. I think these instances are overblown, and I think what they've done is they've taken one instance to suggest this uh, the part stands for the whole. And so they want to take the position that prosecutors who are woke don't care about law and order. The prosecutors who are woke don't care about public safety. The prosecutors who are woke uh, are a coddle. And so this is this is this is demonizing. This is right wing uh, uh, attempts to categorize all people who are attempting to engage in serious reform, a serious change as uh, dangerous, uh, wide-eyed radicals. And so uh, it's an effort to demonize. It's an effort to close off the channels of communication. The point is this. There is a new sense among prosecutors, among people who are on the side of law and order, that we have to make a change. And they're trying to change the culture. They're looking at the question of who really should be in jail. And you're seeing less use of the harsh sentences. So, so we, we went through a period in which we were 
leading the world in mass incarceration. We still do. And so we've pulled back. We've fallen back. And I think all of those are, are examples. Uh, so we have an, a new attitude. We have a new attitude of accountability. And I think that's what the real woke is. The real woke is accountability for police. The real woke is we're going to end mass incarceration, a determination to do that. And I think those are good things. And I salute those brilliant, beautiful uh, men and, and women who are trying to, to bring about that change. And we simply, the, 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 the claim that everything is woke is uh, an expression of polarization. And we have become so polarized that people are not even open to thinking about the changes that we went in. So we've got to we've got to address that. Right. Um, can you talk a little about um, the the cultural phenomenon of anti woke in terms of oh this company you know we're not going to fund this company because they're woke in in education in book banning like it seems to be there's especially in Florida, well, I, like we're calling everything woke and we don't like woke, so we're going to outlaw woke. Well, this is scary. There's a, there's a scary trend that begins with the attack on critical race theory. And so the idea that uh, there's some educators who are foresighted and, and thoughtful and they want to bring in the study of race as part of the curriculum. We, George Floyd's uh, murder shows that we need to be aware of the problem of racism. And so they want to teach about slavery. And so the governor in Florida says, well, that would make white children and white parents feel uncomfortable. I'm, I'm oversimplifying, but just barely. And he labeled everyone who wants to bring about these needed changes in curriculum as somehow radical or uh, critical race theorists. A critical race theorist is, seems to be a cross between a Marxist and a bomb thrower. But critical race theory simply is an effort to bring in what has been suppressed for decades, which is our racial history. Uh, the fact that uh, the founding was a founding that was marred by support for the institution of slavery. There were three clauses in the Constitution by which we protect the slave. There was a fugitive slave clause. And, and there was the clause that you couldn't stop uh, the importation of slaves uh, until 1808. And there was a law that blacks counted for three-fifths of a person. These are things that children need to know. We need to know our history, both the good and the bad. And if we can't do that, how can we bring about change? So what you're saying is in education, um, we we want to make sure that white parents and white children aren't all children, all parents. But aren't black people and black children offended that they're getting shortchanged? Like, okay, so we're not going to talk about my history. We're only going to talk about your history. Well, I think that there's there's something. There is a sense of an imperial notion of education that if uh, that the that normal education only focuses on the history of Anglo-Saxons or people who are Irish or, 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 or the people who supposedly came on the founding. Black people were here since 1619. We built this country. There's one author who says, I recognize no institution in this country in which blacks have not had a significant part, from the building of Washington to the creation of jazz. And so it's uh, black people are, have, we have, we are as American as apple pie. Mm -hmm. And I think that to deprive all children of this 
fact of our history. Now, you see, it's not just important to know from the standpoint of pure knowledge, but it's important to know because we have to bring about change. How do we decide how we change this country unless we appreciate the legacy of slavery? So it's not just that slavery happened, but the impact of slavery is still going on. And so this was simply the beginning of a dialogue in which we need to address and confront the legacy of slavery. And that's really what's at issue, and that's really what the fear is, is that if we start talking about slavery, we'll somehow have to get to the point of what its legacy is and how we redress that. And that's what many in the right don't want to face, mm-hmm. this, this fact that we have to, you can't simply let it go because it happened 100 years ago. You have to deal with its effects, and one of which is mass incarceration, another which is that, that we still have ghettos in this country, that we still have evidence of racial caste. Sure, redlining. Yeah, everybody needs to know about Bessie Smith. Um, so is there any road to mend this fissure, or are we just heading down that road where we're never going to see a united America? Well, I think it is possible, but I think that 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 possibility can only come when we understand and we somehow get an agreement on that we need structural change. So what we've been doing is reform. What we haven't been doing is structural change. Structural change works like this. There are projects that we have engaged in under the facially neutral term of the war on drugs and the war on crime. So that sounds great. Who would not be against the war on drugs? But the war, so-called war on drugs, has been fought in black communities, largely against those communities. You have blacks who are arrested for possession of a small amount of marijuana. They can go to get jail for a year or more. We have a, we arrest, uh, incarcerate a million people or more a year for marijuana over the we may the statistics may vary. Why are we doing that? And overwhelmingly, these are black people. The impact of our criminal justice system is that the ghetto looks more like the prison, and the prison looks more like the ghetto. And as a result of the incarceration, people become unemployable, and you have disproportionate uh, uh, joblessness, disproportionate number of people who can't afford homes. And so the impact of this is incredible. We need to at least begin to stop the war on drugs. That could start with uh, decriminalizing marijuana. And instead of criminalizing it, medicalize it. The way we treat opioids, notice that with people who use opioids, most of whom are in the suburbs, that we think in terms of treatment. When people use marijuana, we think in terms of jail. There's something wrong there. So we need, So structural change begins, I think, with decriminalizing uh, certain substances like and, and treating the people who use uh, small amounts of crack the way we treat people who are opioids. Mm-hmm. Medical treatment, not punishment and right. demonization. So that's where it would begin. It would begin with community control of the police. For, for right now, everything happens with we look at it, it's going to be controlled from downtown. It's almost like there's a colonial administration, and we're going to decide what happens in these uh, dependent colonies. Mm-hmm. And what's, what should happen is people in the inner city should be able to have decisions about what they want their police to do. Do they want them to arrest people for marijuana, or do they want them to fight violent crimes? So mm-hmm. they should, we should have community councils within those communities. That's a, that's one way to mm-hmm. begin to change. By changing power relationships, you change society. Okay. 
And the third thing would be, I think, and the most important is, is that there is a still today a pervasive presumption of guilt that's associated with blacks, particularly black youth. You wear a hoodie, you're still associated with some sort of criminality. We have to change the culture. Mm-hmm. We need a culture in which uh, there is no presumption based on the color of my skin. Right. Um, well, I don't want to let you go until we talk about your book. Can you tell <laughs> us a little about your, it's coming out now? It's- well, it's scheduled to come out in February of 2023. Okay. And the title is The Presumption. And the presumption is a way of trying to understand why is it that we still see, uh, for example, we were talking about the war on drugs, uh, blacks use cocaine at statistically identical rates to whites. Why is it that 60% of the people we arrest are black, that 80% of the people convicted are black, and that 90% of people who go to prison are, 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 are black for crack cocaine? And the cocaine? rest of them go to Wall Street for the day, right? Right. So something's wrong there. Why is it that blacks are disproportionately arrested for drunk driving, disproportionately arrested for jaywalking, disproportionately arrested for almost every crime? Why is it that uh, we still today have blacks who uh, cannot get a house because of housing discrimination. Housing discrimination is very real. Benjamin Comp is uh, joined in a case in which there's a nationwide systemic discrimination being practiced by certain banks. Why is it that we still have this have this this problem? Is there a presumption that blacks don't have good credit? Does so, it go back to your poverty? Yes. In in some way, it's low hanging fruit. It, well, I think poverty, the problem that blacks have has a lot to do with the fact that they're disproportionately poor. But you cannot explain the problems that we're seeing in every area germane to life that merely by issues of class. Mm-hmm. There is a, a, a an enduring knotting together of blacks and crime. And you see that on, on the screen, you know, when you see a gangster, he'll probably have a hoodie on, sunglasses, gold teeth, and be a black person. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we still have this this wicked association of blacks with crime. And it's in film. It's when blacks try to get a job. It's uh, when police decide who to stop and who to arrest. And so we still have this presumption. And so it's an effort to begin the process of realizing this isn't just uh, an exceptional problem of, of one or two bigots, that this is a pervasive problem that has been that's crystallized in the policies and laws. For example, when we targeted guns in New York, for example, it was clear that white neighborhoods were the neighborhoods where most of the illegal guns were, but black neighborhoods were the ones which were targeted. Yeah. And so we that problem, although what we've done is we've changed policies in some instances, uh, what we still haven't done is we haven't rooted out those attitudes. There was a, a group of policemen in Miami Beach, and they had a picture of who the they had this shooting range, and they were going to shoot the criminals. So all the pictures of the criminals were black people. Uh, you know, so something's wrong there. Jay-Z had a, they had a picture of gang members and the, the New York the police department in depicting gang members used a picture of Jay-Z. So something is, so I think that the problem we're talking about has not stopped with the rise of people who those wanted, and I, I salute a generation which is coming up, which I think is far better than their parents, but we still have a pervasive problem of, of, of systemic racism, which begins with this narrative 
that uh, race and crime are somehow knotted together. Yeah, you. Well, your books make me very angry, but I'm so happy that you're on the soapbox. It's like, <laughs> oh, thanks so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank See you, you so much. All righty. Thanks for joining us for this season of The Explainer. If you enjoy our show, leave us a five-star review with your podcast provider and ask your friends to subscribe. You can always drop us a comment at explainer at miami.edu. Our show is engineered and edited by Christopher Alzadi with theme music composed by Rady Kim from the Frost School of Music. I'm your host, Annette Uguez. Today's episode is brought to you by Miami Law's Business of Innovation, Law, and Technology Concentration, preparing tomorrow's lawyers today. For more information, visit law.miami.edu.